Lord, speak through these words of James to each one of our situations and to the place we are in our lives. Pour your Holy Spirit down upon me and upon all of us, both here and at home, as we gather together to listen to your word as a community. And we'll give you all the honor and the glory and the thanks and the praise and the obedience that you deserve. Everybody, both here and at home, said together, Amen. I invite you to look at the version sermon notes. I hope that they're okay. I had a big day yesterday between uh, leaving at 9.30 in the morning for fall pictures with the Davenport family to getting Hannah's uh, senior portraits done at the farm as well to changing to the fourth outfit of the day to go to the wedding of Autumn in Austin last night. It was a long day, so I'm not sure if I got everything correct or not. So please forgive me if, if I didn't. So as we look at the last chapter of James, chapter 5 starts with a warning to the rich. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Because the Lord has heard the cries of the laborers whom the rich have defrauded. That was the whole point of why James was writing in the first place. The rich were taking advantage of the middle class and the poor. And then in verses 7 through 10, James counsels patience until the Lord comes again. Patience like that of a farmer waiting for the fruit to appear. Got to wait for fruit, right? He also warns his readers not to grumble against one another so that you won't be judged. And he holds up the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. And now in chapter 5, verse 13 through 20 in today's scripture, James emphasizes prayer and confession and the value of redeeming those who have wandered from the truth. So what does James say about the power of prayer? Well, there's three categories we basically put it into. The first is the power of the prayer of faith. Say faith. Faith. The power of faith. In prayer. And it begins like this Are any among you suffering? They should do what? Pray. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. And the suffering here could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be our circumstances, such as being sick or homeless, anything that can contribute to a negative life experience sorrow, depression, ill health, family issues. Social situations. And the antidote, he says, is prayer. Not only for God to solve the problem, but also for the strength and the grace to bear it. Because sometimes praying is not about somehow getting a magical answer. It's about getting the strength to work through whatever you need to work through. To make it through whatever you're facing. And he goes on. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. I mean, being cheerful really depends as much on us as our circumstances. Amen? You can decide to be cheerful in anything that you do, to find sheer joy, no matter what is happening to you. But some folks are perpetually gloomy. No matter what happens to them, 
They never crack a smile. They never are in that place of being able to see that things are good. And others always have a smile on their face. You want to simply slap it off sometimes. Like, stop it. Stop smiling. Stop smiling all the time, Dan. Right, Kim? No. The body chemistry has something to do with that. I met a per you know, I didn't met a person. I was with a person yesterday, last night, who got married, who does nothing but smile. Autumn, always smiling. Always. No matter what. Always smiling. Not fake. A genuine sunshine kind of person. My daughter's often like that, so if I can embarrass her in the front row. But this really speaks about the inner self or the passion more than what the outside thing is. So an inner self that is doing well has to do more with a holistic sense of the self rather than just being cheerful. Being able to be on the inside to be able to find the best. My, my friend Robert in the balcony is like that. He has the ability to find the best in just about everything. Sickingly so sometimes. We're both cut of the same cloth, both fives. But our fives are different. I wish I had sometimes the optimism that Robert has instead of struggling with the things that I struggle with in my life and always have. That tells you that it's more than just biology. Circumstances also determine how we are, how we react, how we deal with things in our life. But habits do make a difference. There's an old gospel song, I think, believe it's one of Shelley's very favorites, that gives some similar advice, Shelley. Thank you for being here today after not having to run around doing everything. And thank you so much for helping the youth during this time because you are the backbone of making sure the youth are still functioning. And that's why you're not here when you run out and go away somewhere. But here's a song. There's an old gospel song that says this When upon life's billows you are what? Tempest tossed, right? When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, do what? Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will be a surprise. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. The Apostle Paul has a prescription for that too. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, do what? Give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus toward you. So pray. Whistle a happy tune as the seven doors would encourage us to do your work. Count your blessings. Rejoice and sing praises to God no matter what is going on into your life. So this verse has a prescription for both the ends of the spectrum of human emotion. If you're suffering, do what? Pray. And if you're cheerful, do what? Sing praises. Then, are any among you sick? Who are the sick he's talking about? Well, it refers to any kind of sickness. Bodily infirmity. Short range, long range, chronic. Whatever it might be. And he says this, they should call for the elders, which in the Greek is presbyterios, which where do you think a church gets their name from? The Presbyterian church is based upon that structure, the elders. Others are too. 
They should call for the elders of the church, the ecclesia. See, in Israel, an elder was typically an older man chosen for his maturity and wisdom to serve in a position of authority as representative of the people, a governor, a judge, an advisor. Scribes and Pharisees are the similar things in the New Testament. Many churches have elders. Many of them only have men as elders. You can think about us in the Methodist church, about the church council, the leaders. You're the elders. You're the ones, both men and women, in our denomination who lead, make decisions, and should be praying for the people of the church. Not just sitting in a meeting deciding something that happens afterwards. That's the real work it's talking about here. And have them pray over them. Because the first duty of an elder for the sick is to pray. Leaders, think about that. How much how many times do you actually focus mostly on praying for those who are sick in our community? Or is it an afterthought? And James gives no instructions about how we're supposed to be praying, what the content of these prayers are. Prayers for physical healing, prayers for emotional well-being, spiritual discernment, those are all prayers that are good, you see. In 2009, researchers at San Francisco General Hospital revealed that victims of heart attack, heart failure, and other cardiac problems who were remembered in prayers fared better than those who were not. They actually split the two different groups. Patients, doctors, and nurses did not know which group the patients were in. And prayer group members were scattered around the nation and given only the first names and diagnoses and prognoses of the patients they were praying for. That's it. And the results were dramatic. Actually, they were put in the AMA, American Medical. They prayed for group had significantly fewer complications than the unremembered group. Remember, they don't know who they are. Just their first name. And fewer members of the prayed for group died. The unremembered group, which is such a hard word, unremembered. But it's true. By the people. The unremembered group was five times more likely to develop infections requiring antibiotics. Think about that. Five times more likely. Three times more likely to develop a lung condition leading to heart failure. That's a fact. That even the AMA published. Prayer is effective, you see. And he goes on to say, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And olive oil was the most common oil used. Used purposes both secular, they used it in their food, they used it for lamp fuel, medicinal ointments, and it was religious. They anointed kings and priests and prophets Using the tabernacle and the temple and offerings and sacrifices, olive oil was used all the time. Now, James doesn't even give us details regarding the type or the quantity of oil to be used or even where it's supposed to be applied. 
The Bible doesn't say anywhere about where the oil is supposed to be applied. This idea that we usually put it on our foreheads, palms, whatever, that is not anywhere within James's talk. He only says the anointing should be done in the name of the Lord, you see. And that's what we do when we do anointing. In Exodus 30, Moses gives a recipe for anointing oil that includes myrrh, Right, right. One of the things that Jesus' birth, right? It was a spice. Myrrh and cinnamon. Who doesn't like cinnamon? Among other things. And early in the ministry, Mark tells us the twelve anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Now Catholics and some other denominations practice anointing the sick with oil all the time. But most denominations don't. Perhaps it's because it's the only place in the New Testament where Christians are specifically tasked with anointing the sick with oil. James is the only place. Interesting. Perhaps it's because main New Testament healings didn't involve anointing with oil. They were healed without that. However, we've seen it more and more reclaimed in the UMC church, for instance, over, over the years in anointing. Not everyone has the gift of healing, but Jesus did. Paul did. Other apostles did. We have no reason to believe the gift of healing is still not alive today and given to believers. So it's a good thing when somebody anoints and prays for someone along that way. But not everybody should do it. And he goes on. And he says... The prayer of faith will save the sick. It's an interesting Greek word. It's sozo. Say sozo. 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 It isn't simply the prayer that opens the door to healing, he says, but the prayer of faith. The word sozo can mean save, but it also means heal. So perhaps James intends his readers to understand both as being true. He says the sick person, if a sinner, which who's a sinner? We all are, that's right. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. If a sinner, the sick person will be forgiven. So maybe this sozo in this verse can actually mean the person will be healed of illness, but it's also really saying the person can be healed of and saved from sin. Remember when Jesus and the man comes down the mat and everybody's mad because he heals him physically and says, you can't do that. Which is easier? To heal him from his, you know, from his body or heal him from his, from his sins? La, 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 la. Okay, I'll just do both. There you go. I'm done. Maybe that's what James is referring to. Maybe James was there at math in that chapter where they lay him down on the mat and lower him down. Because James is, of course, who? Jesus' brother. And the Lord will raise them up. Now, it's interesting because the Greek word that's used here is the exact same word that Jesus uses for his own resurrection. How interesting is that? That he would use that word. 
And then Paul used it to speak of, of our resurrection from the dead. So once again, another way that can be interpreted from James is the sick person will be raised from their sick bed, right? But also the door is open for their resurrection at the same time. How does healing work? Is it only physical? Is it spiritual, emotional? I think both those interpretations are very legitimate. And Jesus made sure about that. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. See, he's tying it all together the same way. So spiritual healing is as important as physical healing. Amen? Because isn't it? Can your body not be healed and its body works just fine, but your, your spirit is gone, it's dead, it's injured? Emotionally, you can be drained and dead inside and tired and everything else. It doesn't matter how good your physical health is or vice versa. It'll affect your physical health. We all know your emotional, spiritual health will affect who you are physically. Your body cannot heal the same way when you're in a bad place as it's in a good place. It doesn't work. I see it all the time, medical profession, right? Can someone not will themselves to die? Have you seen somebody will themselves to die? That means that the body can't overcome what the mind and what the spirit says to do in some cases. So, where else do we see the fact is the prayer of faith can accomplish both. What he's saying, this prayer of faith, is, is about physical healing of the body, but it's also about physical the, the spiritual healing. Often when I talk to people and they may be near death, and one of the things that we say is we, we pray for the, their body to heal here and to be fully known here and, and healed now, or we pray for the final healing that is to come. Because one way or another, whether you're going to be on this planet or you're going to be in eternity, you're going to be healed. And sometimes that healing takes place there. It doesn't take place here. Amen? So folks, you have to be aware the prayer of faith is all about that. So where else do we see the power of prayer? Well, James goes on. The power of prayer when you confess your offenses and you pray for each other. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. To confess or profess or to agree. The kind of words used here. And the word for sins here is harmatia. Say harmatia. Harmatia. It's an archery word. It literally means... Have you ever had a bow and arrow before? Raise your hand if you've ever done bow and arrow before. But Dan says, no. It's just, just like this, Dan. No, it's like... No. Do not let Dan be a part of any of the bow and arrow parts of the youth or anything else. Um, there may be an injury. In archery then, you're trying to hit the target, right? And you want to hit the target where? In the center, right? Bullseye. That's what you want, right? Never done it. Don't let Shelly help with the youth. Also bow and arrow, please. You're good. Okay. So you shoot the arrow... And you let it go and goes to the target. Harmatia is when you miss the mark. When you miss the center. When you miss the bullseye. So harmatia, your sins, is when you miss the mark. You know, if it was easy, we'd all get a bullseye every time we did it. And if we're about five feet away, we probably can. The farther the target goes back, the worse it gets. 
So in the harmatia, missing the mark with regard to truth or duty, it is a failure to meet the standard that God has set for us. Our sins are by their very nature against God, no matter what the sins might be. But there are also sins against, there are also sins against our neighbors because, once again, right, love God and do what? Love your neighbor. So our sins go both directions the same way. You can't say you love God and hurt your neighbor because that's a sin. It doesn't work. Confession of sins can be done in several different ways, though. We can confess our missing the mark to first God alone. Maybe we're confessing our sins to God alone. Or two, to the person against whom we have sinned, right? To go to that person and actually confess. Three, could be to a spiritual advisor. Talking to our spiritual advisor about what we've done. Or four, it could be to the entire church. And that's a hard one. But James' requirement in this verse that we confess our sins to one another suggests we are to confess sins committed against the people against whom we have sinned. So he's really talking about the community and talking to the, the actual person. Confession of the entire church be reserved usually for a situation in which the, the guilty part of a public scandal that would hurt the church's witness. One of you are involved in something that went public and became a, a giant mess. You should apologize to the church because you're a part of it. And that's important. It tarnishes the reputation of us all when someone falls. And sure, we can forgive and we can move on, but confession precedes forgiveness and reconciliation. So confessing our sins to one another doesn't preclude also confessing them privately to God. All those things are important one way or another. Both are needful when we've injured our neighbor. We should confess to them. We should also confess to God because once again we're reestablishing the relationship. So confessing the Christian brothers or sisters that we have sinned against them can begin the healing of relationships. There can really be no healing without confession. And it's the part we don't like the most. We don't want to confess that we're broken, that we made mistakes. We want to come out and be able to say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. If they want to confess to me or just, you know, they want to, you know, yeah, I'll be glad to receive your confession. But I didn't do anything wrong. Do you know how many times I talk to folks and I simply start the conversation by saying, I don't know exactly what I've done wrong with anything, but if I've done anything to harm you in what way, whatever, that I don't even know about, please accept my apology. Over the last 19 months, you know how many times I've had to do that? Sometimes you know you've done something, sometimes you don't. Sometimes when somebody interprets something, it's different than what you mean it. Everybody nowadays is certainly on edge and everything is taken with a with a certain tone to it, no matter what happens. Sometimes we need to confess just to confess. I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry. Is it really that much to be able to say that whether you think that you're in the right or you're in the wrong? Or is it better to want to, to begin a relationship again by breaking through that wall 
and just simply taking that. And that's kind of what he's talking about. So in this verse then, you know, he's talking about this whole idea of that. And he says, and pray for one another so that you might be healed. Because now he's returned to the theme of prayer. He's gone through this confession. Now he goes back to it. And keep in mind that prayer is the second step of a two-step process. The first step being confessing to one another. You can't really pray for each other and try to find forgiveness and reconciliation if you're not willing to confess in the first place to get that vulnerability there. And sometimes our stubbornness is enough to keep us from ever getting to confessing so we never get to the prayer part where God can really make things happen. It's difficult because it implies forgiveness. When you pray for someone, it's an intimate experience and it implies that you're forgiving them. So once again, this step is important to healing, both physical and spiritual. And that's why James wraps it all up and he promises this, the one verse maybe you know out of this whole chapter, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Well, he's just described to you what the prayer of the righteous is all about. And it's not about being right. Right, Shelly? It's not about being right. The prayer of the righteous also means being wrong. And being able to confess that you're wrong and reestablish that relationship. And he goes on and gives a story about Elijah. Elijah was a human being like us and he prayed fervently that he might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth yielded its harvest. The interesting part is this is not in First Kings at all, but it's okay. He believes obviously that Elijah did pray for these things, but doesn't say that Elijah prayed for the rain. And he uses to illustrate his contention, the prayers of a righteous person have great power. And then what's the last power of prayer? The last power of prayer is to turn back and save a soul. It's very interesting, this last part, about what prayer can do, right? My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, you ever wandered from the truth before? Got a little bit squirrely off there on the side somewhere. Started looking over there. Started getting, you know, a little... Yeah, squirrely is a good word, isn't it? And uh, started just going off on your own path. I'm like, where, where, where am I? And you get back to the truth path, right? That's the one, you know, it's laid out. It's narrow though, right? The truth is a narrow place, right? It's, it's, it's there. So he says, if somebody wanders off of that path and is brought back by another, so he's saying how it works... Now, the first thing you have to ask, like what Pilate asked, is what is truth? What is truth? Well, truth is that which is real, untainted by falsehood. There are different kinds of truth. A person who avoids telling lies will gain a reputation as being truthful, but that's not really critical to our Christian witness. That's not what it's talking about here. The greater truth is that in that in which we believe and on which we have staked our lives. For Christians, that means that truth is found in Jesus. Amen? Jesus himself said what? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And if he, pr- he promised this too. If you remain in my word then you will know the what? The truth. And the what? Truth will do what? Set you free. 
set you free. The truth does that. So the promise is that when people stray from the faith and we help, to find, help them to find their way back to the faith, that is part of our job, you know. Not simply say, you know what, well, you know, they're gone. Yeah. It's easy to do. Now, I don't mean people by choice have decided to do that, but some folks just lose their way, but we never check on them, so it's kind of like they're out wandering around. You know, if some kid gets lost out there in the wilderness, what happens? Giant search party goes out, right? Get an amber alert that's answered in 10 minutes. You're like, why did I get this amber alert? Oh my gosh, why is this kid from Chattanooga? Why am I going to worry about this mess? 10 minutes later, they're found. Like, well, what did they even put an amber alert out for in the first place if it was just they left home for five minutes? Well, somebody missed them. Somebody cared. Somebody wanted to find them. If we're like that too, maybe we're able to find some people that, that are missing in our lives. And so he says, when we do that, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death. Now think about that. And then something else in a minute. But sometimes even physical death. Sometimes our sins are so egregious that they've actually caused us to, to die or come close to it. Drug abuse, alcohol, Drunk driving, whatever it might be, being stupid, that can lead to death. But more significantly, salvation is spiritual and eternal. So the promise is also that turning a sinner from the error of their ways will cover a multitude of sins. So are these the sins of the errant person or the one who leads them back to the fold? Could be both. It could actually save you to reach someone else and to bring them back into relationship. See Ezekiel 3.21 in your notes. 1 Timothy 4.16. Tell me that's not what it says. And all the practices James talks about describe one thing. Do you know what that one thing is that all of this describes more than anything else without looking at your notes? Yeah. You're out now, aren't you? A caring community. All of this describes a caring community. They include prayer, the singing of songs of praise, the ministry of presence and touch, the laying on of hands and the anointing, all while invoking the power and the promise that belongs to the community in the name of the Lord. And all of these actions assume a community that surrounds, sustains its members in their individual and personal needs. I love this one little thing, the book of James, how we love each other. That's not usually what they say about the book of James. How we love each other. And the civic warning to calls for the elders... For prayer, laying on hands, making the link between individual and the gathered community very particular. That families need to continue to care for one another. And that includes those who are at risk. Yes, nobody likes dealing with people who are a problem, who are at risk, who are broken, who are on the outer edges. But who ever told us that everybody in the church was going to be put together? that they were going to have it all figured out. 
And yet we somehow expect everyone who comes to have gotten it all together before they showed up. The whole point of being here is you don't have it figured out. I don't have it figured out. I'm one step maybe ahead of you only because this is what I do for a living. Not because I have some magic power that somehow enables me to be different from you. And yet, boy, if I make a mistake, you know it's going to pay. We're all the same boat. It may be a different spot on the boat, but we're all in the same one. And once again, there's an honest recognition that there will be some who will wander away from the truth. It's normal. James is saying there'll there'll need to be those among the community who care enough to turn them around and bring them back, not just let them go on their merry way without making any kind of attempt whatsoever to redirect And we need to know that our efforts of bringing back a wandering brother or sister are worth the effort. Because in them we can know that God's salvation is at work still. Amen? That there's still people who are being brought in. There are still folks who are being brought and sheep. They're still out in the fields wandering around. And then all is action and caring and sustaining and having one another's back. The community is bearing witness to the fact that God's work of salvation continues in the involvement and the actions of a caring community that exercises the actions confidently in the name of Jesus. What does it mean to be in a community? Our DS a couple weeks ago said, we are not about going to meetings. We are not about gathering together and doing work. That is not the Christian community. That's not at our heart. It's about discipleship and gathering together and caring for each other and praying for each other and being a part of something greater than we find in the outside world. At the beginning of James, he counseled us that if we lack anything that belongs to wisdom, the correct response is to turn to God in prayer. Knowing God will respond generously and ungrudgingly, he says. And now that confidence is finally asserted at the end of James to bring it all together again. But now the power of prayer holds out some rather effective content and some promises here. And James speaks of its power to save the sick and to raise them up and to give us a chance through the power of prayer for the forgiveness of sins even. In effect, the assertion in the community's exercise of the power of prayer is the very promise and the power of the resurrection itself. That prayer can actually bring the resurrection of people's lives and change them, not just heal them physically. And not just some future hope, but in the now where we recreate and sustain a living and active community of faith. After this is all over, every person in this church will have to decide whether they're going to be a truly active person in this community again. And what that looks like.
Everyone I talk to in every church, same thing. People all over the map. But when this is over, it's a restart. It's a new start. It's a new church. And we'll all have to decide, no matter where we're at, are we going to be committed to this church, to this place, to engage in all the ways it means to be in a community of faith once again? Because our card, our tag, means nothing after 19 months. That's a great thing. It's also a scary thing. But it can mean the church can go to a whole new level in a whole different way with those who are willing to go with it and not just to show up. That's the power of prayer. If we're not spending at least as much time in the prayer ministries of our church as we are in deciding to put speed bumps out in the front, we've missed something. Or how we're going to stay open and fight over masks or no masks, then we've missed something. If we don't know the needs of our congregation because we're so split up, so segregated and spread apart, we're missing something. And I pray that through the book of James, we might go back and find out that it's faith plus action, not action minus faith. Amen.
So who should pray? Anyone. What should we pray about? Anything. When should we pray? Anytime. Where should we pray? Anywhere. Why should we pray? Because God answers prayer. And now as we leave this place, God, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. Help us to remember that you want to heal us when we are sick. Help us when we are in trouble. Forgive us when we sin. And rejoice with us when we are happy. And most of all, may we remember that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Amen.